and welcome to this latest episode of my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we explore God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. I'm Jeff Ebert. This is Season 3, Episode 6, and our focus is again on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to be reading Chapter 5, verses 10 through 20 in a minute, if you want to get your own Bible out and follow along. Ecclesiastes, as we've discovered, means the teacher. And we've been seeing how God uses this teacher, who we believe is Solomon, how he uses this disgruntled sourpuss prophet to kind of explore the question of how can a person find happiness and meaning and satisfaction in life, because that's not what Ecclesiastes, the teacher, has been experiencing in his life. Even though Solomon's the wealthiest, most powerful man of his generation, his life has been nothing but a series of disappointments and letdowns. I mean, he's tried everything, right? Wisdom, money, sex, booze, power, achievement. We looked at all those a couple weeks or last week and the week before. I mean, you name it, he's done it, and he's done it to excess. And he is still coming up empty. He has everything he thought he ever wanted, and yet he feels like his life is just a meaningless burden. So he's singing the blues. Now, up until this point, he's been able to just kind of power his way through life. I mean, if you were to draw an organizational chart of Solomon, it would be pretty simple. It would just be Solomon's name, and then there's everybody else below him. I mean, that's how he lived. He lived isolated, insulated, because of his wealth and power. And he realizes he's living in kind of a meaningless bubble, an elegant bubble to be sure. But as we looked at last week, a terribly lonely one, because he had no significant friendships, no one who could tell him the truth, no one who could hold him accountable. And God is sort of sticking a pin in his bubble. His bubble is about to burst, and Solomon is beginning to see that God has something else in mind for him and for us. So let's uh, hear God's word, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 20. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what do they gain, since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness and with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome later under the sun, during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I grew up in a family that liked to play games, board games, card games, word games, you name it. My mom was especially good at word games. She was like unbeatable. 
uh, bottle, you name it, she was great at it. If she were alive today, I'm sure she'd be dominating people who play words with friends. My family tend to be pretty competitive about winning these games, too. There was no quarter given, no just letting someone win. And so to this day, I hate board games because I was the baby of the family and I never won anything. Forget something complicated like Risk. I couldn't even win at Candyland. It was always back to the molasses swamp for you, Buster. I once read a book by Presbyterian pastor John Ortberg, and I really resonated with what he wrote because he grew up in a similar kind of competitive family that routinely battled each other over games of Monopoly. Monopoly is a game about money where you acquire properties and hotels and businesses and railroads, and the whole point is to drive everyone else into bankruptcy. You want to completely annihilate them, wipe them out, and leave them penniless. So it can be a tense, kind of cutthroat game. In John Ortberg's case, it was his grandmother who was the master of the Monopoly board. This sweet, loving, elderly woman just got possessed when she played Monopoly. She was brutal. Shock and awe. She just beat him over and over and over again, no mercy whatsoever. So John, of course, uh, wanted to beat his grandmother so badly just once, but she was always triumphed. And then one day it happened. He learned to play the game like his grandmother. He became as ruthless as she was. He loved his grandmother, but he was out to destroy her. The right cards came his way. The dice rolled in his direction. The momentum of the game shifted in his favor. And when he got Marvin Gardens, the game was over. Ortberg watched with glee as his grandmother gave up her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. He had finally won. But it's what happened next that is most important. He writes, and I quote, my grandmother had one more thing to teach me. The greatest lesson comes now at the end of the game, she said. Now it all goes back in the box. All those houses and hotels, all those properties from boardwalk to park place, all the railroads and utility companies, and the thousands of dollars of pretend money, when the game was over, it all goes back in the box. Orberg wanted to leave the board set up as it was in the center of the living room, a monument to his conquest, a tribute to his triumph. He wanted to preserve the thrill of victory. But in the end, <coughs> the board gets swept clean, and it all goes back in the box. And that's what's got Solomon all ticked off in this chapter. He's come to the realization that all that he has, all that he's worked for, all that he's accomplished, in the end, it's just all going to go back in the box. Naked you came into this world, and naked you go out. He's finally facing the harsh reality that you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you, not one single penny. It's like the two guys who were talking at the funeral of a wealthy man, and one of them says, I wonder how much he left behind. Well, the answer, of course, is all of it. All of it. He left it all behind, and so will everyone else when they die. Solomon now realizes this. All he has worked for his whole life will be given over to somebody else, specifically his two sons, whom I mentioned uh, last week, I think. These two spoiled, power-hungry sons who then plunge the nation of Israel into a bloody civil war that destroys everything their father ever accomplished. All his wealth and work, it's meaningless. It's gone in a generation. A grievous evil, a chasing after wind. What slaps him in the face is that uh, all his life he's been chasing a lie, the lie that he could achieve total financial security, total financial mastery. Then his heart would be at peace. What Solomon discovered was that for him, the accumulation of so much wealth became a burden rather than a blessing. His life revolved around the acquisition of more and more and more, and he never had enough, so he never found the peace of heart that he was really searching for. Solomon is writing this as an older man. He's approaching life's end. He's finally forced to reevaluate his whole life plan. Because he can't take it with him, 
And not only that, he also realized that he's wasted the journey because of all the anxiety and worry that infected his soul while he was pursuing wealth. I think he's speaking of himself when he says in verse 12, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. He lost a lot of sleep worrying about his abundance, and this left him with a bitter taste in his mouth. He has lived much of his life in rebellion against God. Solomon has turned his back on God again and again. Again and again, he's ignored his own wise counsel, detailed in the book of Proverbs. He's been one of those do-as-I-say-but-not-as-I-do kind of leaders and fathers. And so no wonder his sons eventually turn against him. But God has never given up on Solomon, and that's the good news of the gospel. That's the gospel wabi-sabi part of this story. God never gives up on any of us, no matter how far we feel we have fallen away from him. No matter how many times we stumble, no matter how old we are, even on our final breath, God always offers us the outstretched hand of grace through Jesus Christ. God is finally breaking through Solomon's defenses. Finally, some things are coming into focus about his attitude towards material wealth. In a sense, he finally hears God saying, Arrange your life around what matters most, because your life is short. If you want peace in your heart, if you want a life of real blessing, if you want a life of true wealth, then arrange your life around what matters most. And Solomon is just beginning to realize that the object of the game of life isn't to accumulate as much as you possibly can. The object of the game of life is to be rich towards God. To be rich towards God and to place value on your life the way God places value on your life. Because in the end, that's the only thing that matters, is God's assessment of your life. You see, Solomon has been living his life based on a lie. The lie that your value as a person is based on how you compare with others. Who's got more? Who's got more? Does that sound familiar? That lie drives so many people in our world today. Your value as a person and therefore your sense of satisfaction with life comes through what you have and through having more than the next guy. It's a perspective on life that says we are always in competition with the people around us. And we keep score by comparison. What kind of home do you live in? How many square feet? What kind of cars do you drive? What private school or colleges did your kids attend? Where do you go on vacation? And then on and on and on with these little comparisons. We have this comparison culture to determine your value as a person. And I think it's a sickness. And although we are better off economically than at least 90% of the people in the world, that doesn't stop us from comparing because we always compare up. Who has more than me? And that's why people are never satisfied. It's why people will never find contentment through what they own. We always compare up. And we're dissatisfied because there's always someone who has something more, something bigger, newer, cooler than what I have. And I want it too. So let's look at three solid biblical principles about possessions and wealth that we can, uh, re- so that we can really enjoy what we have and find real satisfaction with life regardless of where we are economically. First, stuff cannot make you happy. Second, you have to realize that everything is a gift from God. And third, you learn to use what is temporary to serve what is eternal. So first, stuff cannot make you happy. I think we've been over this territory, so I won't spend much time on it. We accumulate so much stuff. We fill our houses, our apartments with stuff. People have boxes and boxes of stuff they never unpack from the last time they moved. Or they have so much stuff they don't even have room for it in their homes. Do you know that there are something like over 30,000 self-storage facilities in the U.S. 
that provide over a billion square feet of space for people to store stuff. People spend about $12 billion a year just to pay someone else to store their extra stuff. Storage of stuff is a larger industry than the music industry. That's how much extra stuff we have. That's not wealth. That's a sickness. Often Jesus picks up on the themes of Ecclesiastes in his preaching and in his parables. 17 of Jesus' 36 parables had to do with money or possessions. He talked about money all the time because it was his chief rival. It still is. It's the main idol that leads people away from God, the love of money, seeking security and possessions. Well, here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, I can't say it any better than that. There is a good and proper use for money and possessions, but only when it's a tool in God's hand, not the goal or the focus of a person's life. Otherwise, our material possessions can become an idol that Jesus called mammon, and Jesus won't share first place with anything else. So people have to choose, and Jesus challenged people to be rich towards God. The second biblical principle is everything is a gift from God. There's nothing you have that hasn't been given to you by God. If you look at all your stuff, if you look at your bank account and your investments and say, it's mine, I earned it, then you've bought the world's lie. You've already been seduced. From the start to the finish, the Bible teaches that everything is a gift from God in life. Your life itself, your very next breath, your mind, your talents, your intelligence, your ability to even earn a living is all a gift from God that you are to use for your very best. That's what Jesus' parable about the talents is in Matthew 25. Whenever you've been given, whatever you've been given, you're to use it to the very best of your ability, not to aggrandize yourself, but to serve God. And it begins by recognizing what God has given to you. God's view of wealth is stewardship. A steward is defined as a person whose responsibility it is to take care of something for someone else. Biblical stewardship means whatever we have, whatever we possess, we just hold it for God. It's given to us temporarily, and then it all goes back in the box. The founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, summarized stewardship this way. When the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as an owner, but as a steward. As such, he entrusted you for a season with goods of various kinds. But the sole property of these still rests in him, as you are not your own, but his. Such is likewise all you enjoy. Wesley went on to say, So make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Isn't that great advice? When Christ is the center of your life, take up that challenge to make all you can, to save all you can, and to give all you can. To give sacrificially. That's one thing most wealthy people never really do. They don't give from their ex they give from their excess. Uh, what they don't need, but rarely will you see a wealthy person actually give in a sacrificial way. I was once in a conversation with a wealthy woman who was complaining about just how difficult it was to keep up three houses, you know, the house she lived in, the house on the beach, the house in the mountains. And I had to just keep my mouth shut on that one because if it's such a problem, then sell the beach house and give the proceeds to the poor. 
Of course, that would never happen. At least I've never seen it. If you want to experience greater peace and satisfaction in your life, then embracing and living this truth is indispensable. Everything you have is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God. The third biblical principle that will help you really enjoy the life God has given you is this. Use what is temporary to serve what is eternal. Imagine that I'm lining up a series of items on the table that represent all the various parts of our lives, like a matchbox car could represent an automobile, a dollhouse, a computer, a briefcase, a school backpack, a tennis racket, an iPhone, a bag of golf clubs. All to resent, re represent all the material things that we have in life. You get the idea. Every one of those things would have a sticker on it. And on the sticker would be one word, the word temporary. Temporary. So walk around your house and put a sticker on everything that you see on all your most cherished possessions. And that sticker should read temporary. The key to experiencing God's gladness over your life is to know the difference between what is temporary and what is eternal and to value the eternal over the temporary. Our anxiety comes when we get those two things confused. We invest in what won't last. We invest our time, our energy, our emotions, our money in so many things that are temporary. If you're living for the temporary, then that's what you'll get is temporary. Temporary fulfillment and terrible emptiness. A Solomon kind of meaninglessness because everything that the world has to offer is temporary. But look around at the people you encounter each week. Think of each person in your family, your school, your office, your church, and imagine they too have a sticker on their forehead. A sticker with only one word, and that word is eternal. Eternal. The only things that are eternal aren't things at all. It's only people. Only people go on to live forever. Only people have an eternity ahead of them, and that's what makes each person so precious in God's sight. God wants to spend eternity with them in his presence. And God says to us, use what is temporary to serve what is eternal. Use what is temporary to serve what is eternal. Growing a soul that is healthy and happy and obedient to God means loving and enjoying and valuing people. It means using your gifts and talents and finances for God's kingdom and to help improve the world. It means becoming generous with your stuff, making that which is temporary become the servant of that which is eternal. God isn't against money, not at all. He's against turning money into an idol. He's against greed and using wealth as a tool of oppressing people. God wants you to enjoy the gift of your life by using the temporary things to serve the eternal things, to serve the needs of people and the work of Christ in this world. That's how you become rich towards God. And when you get to the end of your life, what do you want your life to have been about? Well, Jesus told us this parable in Luke 12, verse 15. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, for, be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. You see, Jesus summarizes it this way. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You know, right now, 
your heart is pumping about 70 milliliters of blood with every contraction. 14,000 pints each day, 100,000 beats per every 24 hours. It does this all on its own. It never skips a beat or you would grasp for air and clutch your chest. And in a moment of blinding clarity, you would instantly understand the difference between what is temporary and what is eternal. Don't wait until a few ounces of muscle malfunction before you figure this out. Joyfully embrace your life as a gift from God and use what he has given you. Use what is temporary to serve what is eternal and you will be rich towards God. Have a great week.